At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Uh, this week we have an interview that I did with my favorite fiction writer, Viet Tan Nguyen. I did it at the Nation Magazine's annual conference. Uh, so I sound a little bit like I'm on a stage speaking in a big microphone. Viet Tan Nguyen is on a huge screen behind me uh, via Zoom from actually from, from Minnesota where he was doing a talk in like six degree weather. He was in a high school. He went into the principal's office, got on Zoom. And we did this interview and I don't know. Yeah, it's not sports necessarily, although I do ask him about how he feels uh, teaching at USC where they just gave Logan Riley $110 million to be the football coach. So other than that, though, it's about his books. It's about literature. It's not typical fare for this show. I admit that. But Vietan Nguyen is brilliant. And I thought y'all would dig it. So Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Here's a little Viet Tan win. But also, I've got choice words about Deion Sanders pulling off the biggest uh, recruitment coup. And it's nice to use coup in a context that doesn't involve someone actually uh, fomenting a fascist uh uh, re- resurrection in this country. Okay, moving on from that. But uh, the greatest coup in recruiting that we've seen in some time, and because uh, Deion Sanders is the coach at Jackson State, which is an HBCU. This is a fascinating story. I've got some choice words about that. I've also got some Jake's takes and more. But first, let's go to me with Viet Thanh Nguyen. Our next speaker. His novel, The Sympathizer, won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and his most recent publication is the sequel to The Sympathizer. I'm holding it in my hands right here. It's called The Committed. I absolutely cannot put it down. His other books are a short story collection, The Refugees, Nothing Ever Dies, Vietnam and the Memory of War, and Race and Resistance, Literature and Politics in Asian America. He's also published a book, which you might be interested in, called Chicken of the Sea, a children's book written with his six-year-old son, Ellison. He's a university professor at the University of Southern California, a recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim and MacArthur Foundations. He's also a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and the editor of The Displaced, Refugee Writers on Refugee Lives. I'm so honored to give to you, Viet Thanh Nguyen. Hi. Hi, everybody. Hey, Dave, you were like my best hype man ever. 
uh, <laughs> just just hire you to to say these kinds of things on a regular basis. Hi, everybody out there. I wish I could have, I could be with you. Um, I'm actually in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, right now. I'm coming to you from the principal's office of Central High School in St. Paul, where I'll be talking to high school students immediately after I'm done. Uh, talking with you. I never thought I'd be in the principal's office for any reason besides trouble, so this is actually good. But uh, it's a real pleasure to be here to talk with both of you and well, all of you and with Dave. So if you're in St. Paul, Minnesota, my former stomping grounds are McAllister College in St. Paul. So how cold are you right now? It's pretty freaking cold. It is. I mean, I, I, it was supposed to be 12 degrees when I came and then today is actually eight. So the, for, the forecast lied. Uh, but I'm highly prepared. <laughs> so I'm wearing like three layers right now. Okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm surviving. Yeah, well, we're in Florida, so we're barely dressed. Um, <laughs> I'll try to keep that in mind. Okay. <laughs> Giving you a visual image of, of the nation cruisers on land. Um, well, th thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for joining us from the principal's office in St. Paul, Minnesota. This session is called History race and memory. And I think we all know what that kind of moves us towards talking about. So that's where I wanna go. My first question for you, Professor, is when you first heard that there was an overnight uproar over the teaching of what was being branded as critical race theory in our nation's public schools, what was your response? Uh by that point, I think my response was exasperation. Um, as long as if this was a new thing that was taking place, we've certainly uh, been through many years uh, in, the, in the last decade or so of, of high degree of stress in this country and divisiveness. And you all know what these issues are. So I'm not going to I'm not going to rehearse them. But I think you know, for me, I think we have to put this in the large, long, longer history, longer longer frame here. You know, when uh, when Trump was elected, a lot of people were were shocked that Trump was elected. When Obama was elected, a lot of people were pleasantly surprised or shocked, depending on your political perspective. From, from my point of view, you know, Obama and Trump following, you know, uh, being presidents back to back uh, is indicative of the, what I see as a central that's the central contradiction in American society, you know, which is that we're, we're, we're a country born of incredible ideals that Obama represents, and we're a country born out of um, terrible things like white supremacy, genocide, slavery, all these things that I think Trump uh, represents as well. And both of these aspects are a part of the American character. Uh, neither one can be separated from the other. So when it comes to something like critical race theory, uh, yes, it's, it's reached a, a kind of a new pitch in American society, this, this kind of paranoia and demonization. Uh, but in fact, we've seen it before. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure many of you are old enough as I am to remember political correctness and battles of the culture wars of the 1980s. But back then it felt almost apocalyptic as well that uh, people were singling out this idea that if we put beloved into the Stanford University curriculum, we'd have to remove Shakespeare and this would therefore lead to the balkanization of American society and the end of the United States as we know it. That was kind of the rhetoric of the time. And so I think the, uh, the controversies over critical race theory are, again, a repetition of what we've already seen before in, in the debates over political correctness and multiculturalism and the culture wars. And they go back to, again, the central contradiction about who we are as a country and uh, whether we should be able to, to recognize, to understand, to teach our very complicated and very contradictory history. Obviously, I and you and most of the, the audience out there think that we should teach and talk about these kinds of things. And there's a significant portion of the American population 
that either does not want to talk about these things um, or, in fact, has a pretty good political understanding of what exactly is taking place and, and simply sees critical race theory as a device in order to continue their particular political campaign. So it is a it is a serious thing to to confront. Um, and at the same time, we have to recognize that that uh, the debate over critical critical race theory is not only so much about the theory itself. It's about everything that that it seems to represent to uh, the uh, political opposition in American society. Um, you, you point out just now, I think very aptly, that this uproar around critical race theory was an election gambit, an effort by politicians to scare white voters into voting for, uh, I would argue, reactionary candidates. But how do you understand that such a tactic is successful in the first place? How do you understand the fear among sectors of white America of teaching history. Like I assume right now you're, you're in St. Paul and you're, you're speaking to these high school students. How do you explain why there are parts of this country that don't want their history taught? Well, I, I think that I use that term, you know, demonization. And um, I'm thinking here about the, the works of a political scientist like you know, Michael Rogan from the 1980s. You know. I am sorry, I don't know what, what that noise is, um, but he, you know, he, he was already talking about political demonization in the 1980s. And this idea that we've always needed, we collectively, American society has, has always needed political demons periodically throughout American history, uh, panics, moral panics around certain kinds of, of ideas. Um, back then it was communism, now it seems almost old fashioned. But I think much of the if we look at the rhetoric around critical race theory, in fact, I think it follows in a formulaic way much of the demonization that's already taken place around communism. So, and in fact, the the, the attacks against critical race theory draw a direct line from critical race theory supposedly to uh, Bolshevism and communism, and that this you know teaching critical race theory will open the door to turning us into a socialist and therefore a communist uh, country. So why is this appealing um, to people? Well, I think it's appealing because in fact, um, throughout the history of this country from, from the very beginning uh, of settler colonialism, American settlers uh, or settlers who became Americans have always needed these demons and they've needed to see the world in a very bifurcated, uh, binaristic kind of way. And of course, the first demons that settlers encountered were indigenous peoples here in this country. Um, and so I think that the political rhetoric appeals to this very basic psychic structure and political structure that we have. And it's also a very powerful appeal because I think there is a lot of denial and repression and guilt around uh, th these bloody histories of the United States. You know, I think that that uh, people can in fact recognize that yes, there has been slavery and genocide and so on, but what do we do with that? I think for a lot of people in American society, we they want to deny that the significance of these things, uh, they want to treat them in the very abstract ways. They don't want to think about what actually took place through settler colonialism and through slavery and so on and so forth. And so, to, you know, my reading, my psychic and political reading is the, 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 it's politically effective because demonization has always been key to American society, and it's psychically effective because America, you know, a certain set of Americans don't want to think about this history, and then they'll deflect and instead point to this demon of critical race theory instead. And to take that one, one next step, like that there's this effort right now to repress 
the teaching of parts of US history. There's also both a remarkable new generation of scholars who are unearthing new parts of our history. And at the same time, there's a young generation of people who are thirsty for that history. So how are we doing on the balance sheet right now in terms of teaching our own history in this country? Well, I think that probably depends on what part of the country you're in and what kind of school system you're in and, and all of that. Um, I think in general, through higher education, we, we do see this more complicated teaching of American history that's taking place. That doesn't mean that it's of uniform quality, for example, throughout institutions of higher education. You're going to have variability depending on who's teaching and all that. And it doesn't mean that that we, let's, I'm going to say we on the left, are not sometimes guilty of excess. Um, you, know, you mentioned my novel, The Committed. I mean, the, the Sympathizer was a, was a critique of right-wing politics, partly a critique of right-wing politics in the United States. The Committed is partly a critique of left-wing politics in France. And I think the reason why I did that was because my experience has been that ideology of any kind can be crippling, not, not ideology of any kind can be very uh, uh, excessive, no matter what part of the ideological spectrum you're on. And so we need to be able to, to recognize uh, you know, the, the capacity of our own side to commit excesses, all right? And so there are, you know, things that happen in this struggle over higher education or just the education of American history where people on the left have made mistakes. That's important to recognize. But in general, you know, I think that we, you know, the, the efforts of, of academics, of intellectuals, of teachers, of activists, of parents, and so on, has been transformative in rendering a more complex version of American history at the higher educational level and in a lot of high schools as well, such as the high school that I'm uh, speaking at today. But then you, but you know, obviously there are uh, school districts, there are parents, there are school boards that are not responsive to this kind of education. So my, my feeling about this is that we are, you know, um, in for a long and, and very difficult um, battle, struggle over both the the teaching of American history and American culture and its obvious relationship to politics in general. But uh, we, we've seen it before, I think. Um, it's probably just, it's really painful to actually be living through the, the moment of this kind of struggle. But I still hang on to this idea that it's possible that, uh, I don't know if that's my computer, I'm sorry. Um, it's possible that we uh, can make change if we have enough conversation and dialogue. I mean, I, I still hope that this will be possible. So I'll just end with one anecdote. Um, you know, I went to give a lecture at uh, West, West Point to all of the plebes. That's the first year cadets. There's like a thousand of them. And I was really terrified going to West Point to give this talk to, to the cadets because number one, I'm like, in that room of a thousand cadets, I was the weakest person in the room, physically speaking. And number two, here I am, I'm gonna come in and I did not you know, dilute the message that I was going to talk to them about, uh, saying many of the things that I've, I've already said uh, today. And you know, the cadets listened to me, they were respectful, uh, they applauded. And you know, we had that conversation uh, where I said things like, slavery, genocide, colonization, these are part of American history. Beauty and brutality are part of this country. And so we, I think we, we have to be able to try to have these difficult conversations and dialogues as, as challenging as they may be, as unpleasant as they, as they may be. Um, I don't see a way, a way forward without, without, that, without that taking place. I need to sit with what you just said for a second. You just said you talked about genocide and colonization to a class at West Point. 
I'm sorry. Like I have, I have my questions, and I just, I just that, that that took me so aback. I mean, what was what was the reaction? What was the reaction not only of the of the plebes, but what was the reaction of the event organizers, the the the, the elders who brought you in? Were they expecting such a a, a bracing talk about the history of their own uh, branch of government? You know, the reason why I accept a lot of talking, speaking invitations um, is that I'm always curious about audiences and, and I want to learn more about my audiences and the institutions that I visit. And so when I got the invitation from West Point, I was terrified again, but I thought this is important. I don't agree with the American military, uh, but I know a lot of, uh, I've had contact with a lot of military people because I teach a, a class at my university on the war in Vietnam. Uh, and I have a lot of ROTC cadets and I have a lot of veterans who have returned from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And these young men and women uh, often come to class in full uniform and sit in the front row, you know. And, you know, I felt that in, in teaching that class, I had to be able to reach out to everybody. Um, there were, this is a class of typically 150 students as a general education class, very few humanities majors, most of them are sciences, pre-med of some kind, very practical majors, and these military uh, students as well. And I felt that my obligation as a professor teaching general education on, on a topic that I think is very important to the United States uh, and to Vietnam, it, my obligation is not to get up there and to be an ideologue and, and tell the students, you know, this is what you should believe. My obligation is to get up there and to persuade. And the way that, 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 that I think I can do that is number one, through telling a story, and number through, number two, by, by, by giving them stories, they, they read a lot of novels and, and, and autobiographies and watch movies, and giving them as many facts, indisputable facts, as I can. But the persuasion and the storytelling are really, really crucial to, to this act of reaching out. Uh, and so when I went to, to West Point, number one, the, the, one of the reasons, reasons why I accepted is because I gave the same lecture that Ralph Ellison gave uh, in the 1960s. And in fact, the cadet who escorted Ralph Ellison became an English professor named Emery Elliott. And I, you know, he was my, one of my, you know, mentors. Um, and he said, you know, when I met uh, uh, Ralph Ellison on, on the campus of West Point and escorted him around, it was a life-changing experience for me. And I thought, I got to do this. I mean, who, who knows who I can meet and who knows what kind of impact they can have on me and I can have on them. And so, in fact, what I discovered is that West Point does have liberals, you know, like they have an English department, uh, an history department with faculty who are intellectual. They're off military officers. They're also intellectuals. They're scholars and they're teachers. And they're, they, they, they talk about a lot of the same things that, that we're talking about. And, you know, their job is exactly like my job, which is to teach general education and to, to reach out to these young men and women who are going to have very important jobs and have contact with a lot of obviously non-American people and, and, and have, have a lot of power, literally a lot of power. And so it, I thought it was crucial to, to do this and to go and learn what I could about, about West Point. And so I met a wide range of, of cadets, uh, black cadets, white cadets, male cadets, Vietnamese cadets, women cadets, and all of that. And um, my two escorts around the campus were these two young women um, you know, who were, who were going to graduate soon and, and, and go off to, to do, I think one was going off to be like artillery, you know, missiles, this kind of stuff. And I asked them, look, I'm going to give this talk and it draws a lot from this essay that I published in Time Magazine, where I tell this story about the United States, about it being a country of both beauty and brutality. And the point is, is that, uh, uh, we're going to end on the, this message 
that this country, uh, with all of its democratic ideals, is also founded on slavery, genocide, colonization, and war. And I said, should I, should I give this lecture? And they said, yes, you have to do this because the cadets need to hear it. Uh, and no, I, I mean, I was, again, I, my, my, heart, my heart was racing. I was very, very nervous and all that. But I got up in front of the cadets and I told, I told them a story um, about myself, about being a refugee, about coming to this country and weaving my personal life in as a refugee from the war in Vietnam, a war in which they obviously um, have studied and connecting it to this, what it means to be an American. And all I could do is to tell the story and to be honest and not to try to you know, browbeat them or tell them that they are wrong or to lecture them about the military industrial complex or anything like that. And so the, I, I, you know, I did not get booed and they gave me a standing ovation. It seemed to be spontaneous at the end. You know, the question and answer session was also really interesting because like I said, there are a lot of black cadets and, and Asian cadets uh, there. Um, and uh, you know, the, 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 it was it was more courageous for this young woman, uh, black cadet, to you know stand up and say, "Look, there's still racism in in West Point." You know, the cadets kind of hissed at her, you know, for for saying that. Uh, and I felt that you know, if my presence was there enough to give her that space to say this, to make this, the cadets recognize that some of these issues are still. They're not theoretical, but they're there at their own institution. Then that's what the purpose of, of, of going out and engaging with people, having these dialogues is, is why that's so important. So I think that what I, what I really want to stress here is that, you know, in our age of political divisiveness, it's, it's very tempting to take on the I'm holier than thou attitude towards towards others and to to lecture and to remonstrate and all that, all that kind of thing. But there, that we need to have a space where we tell, tell our stories. We try to connect with other people on you know somewhere in between and we we try to persuade and we, we try to use our, our experiences as human beings to to relate to each other um and, and I, I don't know if i how many people i might have persuaded in in that that audience but the point is that they heard the story i think hopefully it will affect somebody hopefully 20 years from now you know some cadets out there will have some memory of this of this visit just like emory elliott had that had had that memory of ralph ellison's visit to west point and in 1968 or so. And so that's how we try to move forward, uh, both by doing these books and systemic policy changes, all that kind of stuff, but also by our small audiences and our human contact with each other. Yeah, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, uh, since you brought it up, given it, and also given its centrality in your work, how do you feel like the United States does at remembering America's war in Vietnam, the lessons that it draws uh, the way in which it implants itself on the 21st century, the way it's been implanted in our memory as a country. You know, I think that um, ironically, the United States is is has been very responsible for perpetuating the memory of the war in Vietnam as a as a bad war. Um, it's through American ho movies up from Hollywood, and it's through American photographs from that war period, and television news, and so on that these images are broadcast all over the world of what uh, American soldiers and airmen did in Vietnam. And so on the one hand, you, you have this popular cultural memory of the war as being a bad war, and it's a global memory because of the power of American popular culture and uh, American narrative. On the other hand, I think there has been a concerted effort um, in many areas 
after the war, but very definitely from you know the, from bipartisan presidents, Democrats and Republicans, down to all levels of the Pentagon, um, to recast the memory of the war, uh, not as a bad war, but as, as a failed war, as a noble war that, that was flawed. And the lessons to be extracted from that are not, let's not do this again, the lessons to be extracted from that are, let's do it better next time, if and when we, we have to go to war. And of course, it was no longer a matter of if, it became a matter of when. Um, and you could see in, in the years after the, the war in Vietnam that the United States was slowly trying out new tactics, new techniques, both in terms of military strategy, but also in terms of public relations and media control, um, you know, with the, the invasions of Grenada and Panama and then uh, the, the first Gulf War. Uh, all of these, I think, were, were preludes to 9-11, so that when 9-11 happened, the United States was absolutely primed to go to war. Now, on the one hand, we were primed because of that idea of political demonology, right? Um, that we needed demons, and 9-11 gave us the demons that we needed. And the 26 years from, from the end of the war in Vietnam to, to 2001 had allowed the United States both to, to repair its military, to develop new strategies based on doing things differently than, than were done in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, and to develop, again, the, the ideological machinery to uh, control the reception of the war. So, you know, all of these things are what has helped to enable us to, to spend the next 19 or 20 years waging this forever war um, through so much of, of, uh, of the Middle East. Um, so I think that these are the two different ways that the war has been remembered. Um, and so the, 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 the idea of the Vietnam War is still very powerful in the American imagination for uh, that bad war, but 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 you know, in in all practical terms, uh, the United States has done everything it could to d develop a whole new set of strategies to try to wage more effectively. Now, the failure in all of that, I think, is that for all of the hardware and tactics and strategies and all that that we've seen deployed in the last twenty years, the one lesson from the war in Vietnam that that the United States has seemingly not absorbed is that it should not do these kinds of wars of occupation uh, and attrition. Uh, and that these wars are <laughs> really, really difficult to, to, to win as we, as we have seen. But Americans in general are convinced of their own superiority. Uh, that was what helped to bring the United States into Indochina. It is what has helped bring the United States into Iraq and Afghanistan. This idea that American might and, and know-how and all this uh, cultural and technological superiority means we will triumph. That is so deeply ingrained in the idea of us as Americans that even the war in Vietnam could only temporarily, you know, hobble us in that regard. And we've come, you know, we came back in, in, in throughout the last 20 years to try to, to, to demonstrate that this was this, this was true, and we were humbled again. But I don't think that, um, you know, if we're using Vietnam as the war in Vietnam as, as a lesson, I don't think the lesson has really, really been learned. Um, I think we I think the United States has been cowed a little bit uh, by by the fall of Kabul. But I don't think there's a, a retraction happening right now. Uh, if anything, it's 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 more of the same that we're that we're going to see. Did the fall of Kabul at all? 
uh, bring your mind back to Saigon? And are, are there any, you know, commonalities that are worth drawing out? I mean, you know, Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Do you see a rhyming with what happened in Kabul, what happened in Saigon? I, I, I do. Um... I mean, these are very di different kinds of wars. Uh, the, the, specific, the specifics are very, very different. So we don't want to go too far into the, the, the parallels and the analogies, but there are some things that are similar. Um, from my point of view, the war efforts in both of these countries were pretty much doomed from the very beginning, uh, partly based on you know, the, the enemies that the United States was fighting and, and the enemy's capacity to fight that the United States simply could not recognize or understand. And then partly based on the United States' own failures in terms of how they saw, how we saw these wars and how they would be conducted. So that in both countries, you know, one of the two, some of the things that went wrong included picking the wrong um, partners uh, to fight with uh, and then creating cultures of corruption. Um, so what I saw is that in both cases, Americans were, were quick to blame Vietnamese and Afghan allies for the failures of these wars based on cowardice, incompetence, corruption, and so on, without recognizing that much of these failures, if they, if they existed, were due to American policies that encouraged the corruption or made the corruption possible, right? So the United States does, does not seem to have the capacity to recognize that it creates its own cultures of failure in the countries that it occupies. And so uh, the at a certain point, I think in both uh, South Vietnam and in Afghanistan, it became, became pretty obvious that um, these, re these, these, these regimes would fall. And then it would be a matter of how to, how to extract the United States and its allies. So that's another thing that we see happening similarly. And... Um, we saw these images from Kabul. I think it evoked for a lot of people very similar images from the, the fall, of, fall of Saigon. And uh, I think the, the, the one question that I had, I have is, you know, which was worse, you know, the fall of Kabul or, or the fall of, or the fall of Saigon? And I, I think it's a mixed uh, response at this point because I think the actual fall of Kabul and and uh, it's it, you know and, and in terms of how many people the United States was able to extract was 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 a worse situation than what happened with the fall of Saigon. The flip side of it is, at least from the perspective of, of refugees, you know, one positive thing about all of this is that surprised me was the the positivity of the American response to taking Afghan refugees. We have to remember that in 1975, the majority of Americans did not want to accept refugees from Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Polls seem to indicate that the majority of Americans do want to help and accept Afghan refugees here in the United States. Um, that actually took me by surprise, gave me some, some hope about uh, my fellow Americans. Um, but, you know, I think that as with the end of the war in Vietnam, the United States might be reluctant to commit troops for another war of occupation anytime soon, but I don't think that that, that, that is a, a red line that we won't cross again. You just mentioned uh, refugees. Uh, you're, you're the editor of the Displaced Refugee Writers on Refugee Lives. Uh, are there common threads that you see in refugee writing or are there, do the writings tend to be distinct or do you see common themes that emerge when you read the writings of refugees? And I guess I could also ask you, what do you think the best response is right now to what is a global crisis on the question of refugees? 
So I think that you know refugee experiences are obviously different from time to time and from different countries and 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 um, you know conflicts and crises and so on. But some of the common themes that uh, that I saw in the writing um, was obviously loss, displacement, total rupture and transformation in people's identities because they lost their countries, their their livelihoods, and oftentimes family members and friends and, and all of that. So deep sorrow, um, deep confusion over you know who they are and, and uh, what what they're going to become. Um, when the writers talk about the actual refugee experience, uh, some other things that are in, that are common uh, is this idea that refugees um, cease being human once they become refugees. Um, not that they're not human beings, but in the eyes of other people, refugees have lost their their the humanity that they share with citizens, with people of, of countries that have not, you know, are not producing refugees. So there are common themes of being put into refugee camps that are, uh, you know, terrible, um, you know, uh, common themes of, of human beings being treated like waste and living in waste, uh, barely being able to survive and, and subsist. So that the refugee knows that even when the refugee is receiving charitable aid, it's oftentimes, uh, you know, barely enough to keep them alive. And so that that reminds refugees constantly that they are on the on the borderline between waste and humanity, that they're they're barely alive. Um, and that another common theme that, that we see in the writings is that there is the expectation of gratitude on the part of host countries that they, they think refugees should express gratitude for uh, being rescued and for, you know, uh, being being taken in. And of course, a lot of refugees do feel that, but they also feel that they have to perform that that gratitude. And that's a very complicated um, emotion because the host country's expectations of gratitude can easily be flipped into a, a, uh, a pattern of resentment. Like if you're not grateful, then you should leave and go back to where you came from. And from the, expect, from the perspective of refugees, oftentimes the, the gratitude has to be performed, but also there's a lot of ambivalence because in a lot of circumstances, refugees are aware that they wouldn't be refugees unless the conditions that, that produce them are were acknowledged. So in the case of the Vietnam War, for example, I've, I've written about this, you know, Vietnamese refugees are grateful, but maybe they wouldn't have had to be grateful if the United States hadn't bombed or invaded or occupied their country in the first place. So as a refugee, you can't say that part. <clears throat> You can only say that part in Vietnamese or in your own your own language, but you know you can't say it to in English or in whatever language of the host country because you're afraid of offending your hosts um, and and revealing to them the complexities of the situations that have delivered refugees uh, to their door. Um, in terms of the best response to uh, to refugees, um, you know I I think at the moment. Cycling through all the different scenarios in my head, if we're, if we're thinking about uh, the United States and, and Western Europe, I mean, Germany seems to have done the best and the most in terms of its uh, Angela Merkel's response to uh, to refugees, both in terms of her policy and and her rhetoric. If we think outside of um, you know uh, Western Europe and the United States, we have to recognize that it's the oftentimes the the poorer countries that have absorbed. Uh, the most refugees, um, not the United States or Western Europe, despite that rhetoric, but it's the bordering countries 
places like Pakistan, for example, that uh, or Turkey, that have that are dealing with much larger populations of refugees. Whether they're dealing with them successfully or not is a different issue, but they've certainly taken in much much larger numbers than Western Europe and the United States. You know, I was I was looking at my uh, bookshelf and right by my bed, really my, my nightstand, and I saw that in addition to the committed, I, I happened to have right there on my nightstand um, a book called On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vong, uh, Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong. And this was not at all by design. This is just what I'm reading. And I took a step back from it and thought, is there an unprecedented listening right now to Asian voices in a way that there hasn't been in decades past? Do you agree with that and what accounts for it? Yeah. If we're, if we're talking about books, by the way, hey, everybody out there, read Dave's book, The Kaepernick Effect. I thought it was so inspiring, uh, especially here. I'm on, I'm on the high school yeah, campus, you know, um, not far from uh, the scene of George Floyd's murder. And, uh, you know, and, you know, my host was telling me about the political activism of the of the high school students here around race, but also class and gender issues as well. And so Dave's book uh, is really inspiring in terms of, of, of uh, you know, his interviews and his, his pulling together of all these stories of young students in high schools and colleges who took it upon themselves to take the knee and to, and to bring politics into their schools and into uh, sports. Um, really powerful. So thank you, Dave, for that. Um, I think that, in fact, yes, we are, we're a pretty good moment right now for Asian American writing. Um, and I wrote my, my first book, uh, an academic book, none of you need to read it, you know, on Asian American literature and politics, uh, going back all the way to 1898 and uh, the, or 1896, and the publication of the first, I think, book in English by a writer of Asian descent in the United States. So we've been writing for a very long time uh, in the United States and in Canada. And, uh, you know, but we, we, we were not called Asian Americans until 1968 when uh, young Asian Americans invented this term at UCLA. So that meant that there were people writing as Asians in the United States for decades before 1968. And it must have been a really lonely <laughs> experience for, for, for all of them, you know, like, uh, you know, the population of Asian Americans was much, much smaller. Um, there was no Asian American identities, so you were just dealing with being Chinese or Japanese or Filipino. Um, and you were confronted by this at best ignorant and at worst hostile world of, of publishing and, and, and readers and so on and so forth. And so I, I look back upon these earlier writers like Carlos Bulosan and John Okada and, and uh, Suisin Far and just met so many other uh, uh, writers with gratitude and admiration um, because most of them wrote in obscurity and died in obscurity, uh, but they set the framework for what we're seeing now. So that when someone like myself or Ocean or Kathy Park Hong comes along and so many others, we don't we don't write in a vacuum. It's not as if like we 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 are the first of our kind or or anything like that. It's like we are now we are now confronting a publishing world that that is, you know, feels guilty to a certain extent because it's you know staffed by liberals for the most part, feels guilty about the conditions of race and representation in this country and are, are willing to publish Asian American writers uh, in a way that they wouldn't have been 30, 40 years ago. So when I was um, you know, in college in the 90s and in graduate school, you know, it was, it was a huge moment whenever a book by an Asian American writer came out. That happened like maybe once a year. Now it's like once a week, <laughs> literally, that you see another book by an Asian American writer uh, come out. And I think that's due to the fact that 
Number one, the Asian American population has grown very fast to 6% of the nation's population today. And number two, that, that as much as, as you know, we are opposed to the idea of us as a model minority, in fact, there's a good number of us who do things like go to college. Now, a lot of us who go to college go on to engineering and law and all that kind of stuff, but a good number are in the humanities. And so part of that effect has been that we have produced over the last you know, probably two or three decades, a good number of, of Asian American writers out of the university system, the MFA system. So there's a whole network now built up to cultivate and support these writers, both at the educational level, but also in publishing and, and, and uh, in, age, in the world of the agents and so on. And this is both mostly good, but there's some bad to it because now Asian American writing is, uh, is a commodity. It's a niche. So one of the reasons why publishing responds to Asian American writing is that it knows that it can sell these kinds of books and it's always looking publishing is always looking for the next niche or commodity that it can that it can exploit and again mostly good some bad because now as an asian american writer you are not an unknown product but you are expected to do things that publishing still recognizes like tell the immigrant story for example so what happens if you are sort of an anomalous asian american writer who's doing something different it still can be challenging to get published um but simply because we have so many Asian American writers out there today. Um, you know, there's there's good ones and there's some bad ones and, you know, mediocre ones and so on. If you have a big enough pool, you're gonna get some stellar ones like Kathy Park Hong and, and Ocean Vuong. And what's really, uh, you know, inspiring about their, their, their works is that it's not just Asian Americans who are reading On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous or Minor Feelings. In fact, lots of people, different backgrounds are reading those, uh, reading those books. Um, and so I think that uh, the the cultural side of Asian American politics is, is is really crucial in transforming the the image of Asian Amer images of Asian Americans in this country. So writers have served a very important function uh, in that regard. Um, that being said, I think when we talk about Asian American representation in general, we have to acknowledge that it's not just the writers or the cultural producers or the artists, but it's also the, 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 the Asian American movement as a whole, which involves politicians and activists and organizers and all of that. Both of these uh, sides of the Asian American movement, the political and the cultural are, cultural are absolutely necessary to each other, um, which is why I think for a lot of Asian American writers, the, the dimension of politics is so uh, evident in a lot of their works, or at least the ones I find to be, to be more interesting, uh, this recognition that we proceed um, hand in hand uh, cultural workers and, and political workers to change the conditions and, and uh, representations of Asian Americans in this country. I, I certainly see folks getting to ask questions, but I just have a couple of more, uh, and then we'll, we'll send it to the audience to start organizing your thoughts right now, take advantage of this amazing opportunity to talk to, to, talk to the professor. Um, as we near the end, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a sports question. Uh, You've been uh, outspoken on Facebook, and I'm hoping you could share some of your thoughts about the fact that your school, the University of Southern California, just signed a new football coach named Lincoln Riley to a contract in excess of $110 million. Uh, so you're, as a professor and as a worker at this institution, what are your thoughts about your new colleague, Lincoln Riley, and his contract? <laughs> 
Well, I'm, I'm a professor at the University of Southern California. It's a very complicated place to be at. You know, it's uh, I've been here for 24 years and uh, it's a corporate university as most major research, as all major research universities are. So I think many of the problems and uh, opportunities at a place like USC are, are not unique. You know, we, we share um, these problems and opportunities with all the major research universities out there. Um, and uh, one of the most basic issues, of course, is that uh, we're supposed to be, uh, universities are supposed to be places of higher learning and research and so on and so forth, but they're also obviously places to, to make money. Um, and that's why the, the question of endowments and fundraising are so big and alumni support and all that. And there's a drum, constant drumbeat to, to raise money and bring in revenue uh, of all kinds. And that affects everybody, including the, the professors who are also expected to bring in um, either the funding or the grants or the prestige, you know. And uh, it's a complicated situation for me because I bring in the prestige to the university and uh, they reward that kind of thing. That being said, I think that, you know, a place like USC, again, not unique, uh, the, the saturation of, of this kind of value system uh, of, of basically money and prestige is really distorting um, to an institution whose professed goal is actually more about the intellect. And so you have this contradiction between the life of the mind and the cultivation of values and, and all that kind of stuff that all universities are good at talking about with this imperative to make money, to raise money and all that. And um, the football uh, or high, you know, athletics in general, but obviously, especially football and basketball really magnify this kind of thing. Um, I, I uh, <laughs> personally, I personally don't understand it, you know, and I, I actually stood up in front of a whole room full of, of USC big wigs and everything on the occasion of my winning the Pulitzer Prize and they wanted to fet me. And I said, you know what? I've, I've never been to a USC football game. You should have heard the shock in the room. It was like a collective gasp. You've never been to a USC football game. It was like I committed a crime, you know, and um, I, I made up for that. I did go to one USC football game after that, uh, and that was in the president's box. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, sitting here with billionaires, literally, in the president's box. And it just, you know, reinforces this idea that football comes to symbolize entertainment, prestige, money, uh, sexuality, attractiveness, all these kinds of, of, of values that, again, are, are difficult to reconcile with the more noble mission of the university. It's not that athletics are not noble. Athletics are noble. But when athletics become saturated with money to this degree, it, it, that nobility is kind of <laughs> stripped away. So do I think that um, our, our new coach is overpaid? Um, Obviously, yes, <laughs> probably not in the world of, of higher education and football, but yes, in every other every other circumstance. And it's a symptom of the sort of the misplaced values of the university, um, which are, which is driven partly by the administration, but also honestly by a lot of the alumni as well. So, uh, you know, in other, in other words, the, the the failures of the university are not only due to the corporatization of the university uh, in which academic leadership is complicit, but it's also, you know, driven by a fan base of alumni who are also uh, themselves subjected to the, this, this warped value system about entertainment and, uh, and capital. Um, so there's a lot of complicity uh, all around in this contract, uh, because even if there are a lot of people on my Facebook feed who are revolted by it, I'm assuming that there's a huge number of people in the USC sports world who are totally thrilled with this uh, this new hire.
And, and one last question before we go to the audience, people can start to raise their hands. One of, one of the great themes, overarching themes for this weekend, I think we would all agree is the search for hope. Do we agree about that? It's what, it's what everybody in this room is yearning for. It's, every, it's everything that we're searching for. It's everything that we're fighting for. So Professor, what gives you hope? You know, once I submitted a short story to a major magazine and the editor wrote back and said, hey, it's a pretty good short story, but where's the hope? I was like a younger writer, like, what? Why do you want hope? What is that? What, literature? Is literature supposed to offer you hope? Um, so I think that we, I think hope can be complicated. I, I agree. We need hope. I need hope. You know, I, I need hope. You know, I, I've read some very pessimistic things recently and, uh, by writers and I thought, gosh, this, these are so pessimistic. Even someone like me needs some hope here. But I think hope is hope can be a complicated thing. I mean, obviously, we don't want to have simple hope. We don't want to have saccharine hope. We don't want to have, you know, color blindness hope, where we shut shut our eyes to things that are happening out there in the world. I think we need a complicated, complex hope, or a hope that's born out of the recognition of the challenges that we face, but a hope born out of the recognition that what we're experiencing has been experienced before. A hope that's born out of a recognition that for some people in this country what we're experiencing is a total shock, that they have never thought about some of these issues before, that they have never thought about some of the, the, the contradictions and complications of American society. And for other people in this country, you know, they've seen it all before. In other words, the, 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 the idea that the United States is becoming apocalyptic or dystopic as if it's is not something new. It is new to some portion of the American population, but to other people in the American population, they've seen it all before. You know, if they've lost their land, if their ancestors, ancestors have been enslaved, if they've been driven to this country by, by, by the destruction of their countries by the United States, that's, we've already seen this. And so I think that that's where my hope comes from, is this idea that, uh, in fact, we've, we've uh, uh, made some kinds of progress in American society. And if we can temper that rhetoric, you know, the idea that, that we're inevitably going to move on to, to uh, some, some better place and more just America, if we can temper that with a recognition that in fact, this country has always, has always done terrible things to some of its own uh, people or the people who are on this land, then we have that complicated hope. Um, uh, there, there, there's various terms for this. The one, last term that I heard that I sort of enjoy is tragic optimism. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I can be optimistic about the future, but it's layered with a, with a sense of, of tragedy, both of the, the tragedy of the past, the tragedy of the present, and this, this very real sense that there could be tragedy waiting for us very soon as well, but uh, tempered with, with optimism at the same time. Round of applause, please. For That's the best I could do. Sorry. We have about 10 minutes for questions. Um, I'll ask folks to keep them brief so we can get as many people as possible. Going back to the original theme of critical race theory, I have a hopefully short anecdote, which is both illuminating and confusing. So I give a lecture to my students about the foundation of the United States. And of course, it's to do with killing most, a lot of Indians and stealing their land and consequently writing a constitution that makes land and, and, and human life sacrosanct. And uh, I get a foot used to the university who gets letters, used to get letters that Professor Glynn is, is, is being uh, anti-American. And it was quite interesting. My response at one point was that, of course, I am American. And unlike most Americans there, I'd actually chosen to become American rather than being born into it. But on the other hand, my response was 
that it really wasn't the Americans that did that because we didn't have America, it was the English of whom I was formerly a member. Uh, and yet, of course, the issue then became that I was being, uh, at least in critical race theory terms, I, I was being, you know, a critical of something called a white race, which I've never quite understood because white isn't a race, it's not even a color, it's a tone. And uh, of course, if you're a Darwinian, uh, one recognizes that the whole notion of race is a social construction where one race ends and another one begins. So I'm, I'm very confused about, I mean, it seems to me that critical race theory in its current form means the following. Don't be critical of the white race. Uh, not the English race, not the American race, but the white race. So, so what is a race and, 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 and what, uh, you know, I mean, it is, uh, if, given that we're all Darwinians, I assume, uh, uh, how do we make that distinction in the first place? And, um, and, and, and I'm just simply confused about that, just as my students and indeed myself was confused about my status as an American or an English person. Right. Well, you know, I, I'm uh, teaching a seminar on um, a graduate seminar on decolonization right now. It's the second time I'm teaching it. And, and uh, you know, I always start off uh, with France Fanon and um, black skin, white mask is very, very early in, in the reading. And, um, you know, I think his meditations on on race uh, from the 1950, late 1950s uh, are still very powerful and still still very relevant, uh, hopefully in addressing your question, um, because you know, obviously, yes, race is a fiction and uh, race is a trap. Um, in Fanon's work, you know, he talks about the pain and the contradiction of being of being black and having to write about being black, organizing around being black and so on, recognizing that being black still matters um, and that also aspiring to be human at the same time so that he would not be classified and not see himself as being black. Uh, so he he. And I agree with him, you know, it's it's that we have to aspire to this idea of humanity that isn't contaminated by race and by racism. Now, how do we get there? You know, and I think that's 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 number one, the crucial one of the crucial distinctions around people's attitudes on critical race theory or even the divides around race in general in this country. But number two, you know, the Fanon's assertion that humanity is still important is I think something that the left needs to remind itself about as well. And just as I have a complicated notion about what hope is, I have a complicated notion about what humanity is that I think I share with, with Fennel, which is that when we talk about humanity, you know, the, the, the ones, people who want to be the colorblind about, about race simply say, well, we should all just be human. And second floor, second floor students. Oh, uh Please I have to mute because they're, the school is making an announcement right now. Okay, so you know, for me, like humanity is 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 both all the good stuff about us, but it's also inhumanity at the same time. That you know, we this and this goes with this conception of what it means to be an American. The people who tell you to to love it or leave it are the ones who want a very simplified notion of what the United States is. And I think most of us in the in this room want the. I think are open to the complex, complicated idea of what America is and of what being human is, that it includes our capacity to do inhuman things. Um, so born out of that, when it comes to, to race, and I'm, I'm hoping I'm answering your question correctly because I didn't hear all of it, but you know, yes, we should aspire to, to end race, but how do we aspire to, to end it? For Fanon, 
it had to do with decolonization and the total disordering of the world, that race is an outcome of colonization, a total world system. And so the only way to end race is by ending that system. Now that's a huge challenge, right? But it, 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 to me, it's actually kind of hopeful because once we get to that point of recognizing that, that in order to end race, you actually need to end the entire system of colonization, it means you have an answer, you have a solution versus just muddling around thinking, you know, like we had this policy or that policy, or then we could, we could end race. If, if, if for example, we're, if we become Asian Americans, this is a way for us to end race, and it's not. Like I call myself an Asian American, uh, I'll, I'll use that example, knowing that it's a highly limited kind of identity. It's very powerful for me in a lot of ways, transformed me when I was, when I was a, a college student, but I also recognize that being an Asian American is also a trap in the end, because it won't actually get us to that moment of humanity that uh, that Fennel is asking for. I mean, being Asian American is only one step along the way uh, towards ending this system of race uh, to begin with. And so, uh, you know, I think critical race theory, the way that I understand it from its you know practitioners and not from its, its demonization, is an effort to recognize that race has been baked into so many aspects of American society and and, and the law, even in places where race doesn't seem to be present that's what it's basically arguing for um, but from there once we can acknowledge that race is actually deeply embedded in so many uh, aspects of our lives then we can think about what it means to end it uh, you mentioned Fanon before we get to our, our last question it's the 70th anniversary of the death of France Fanon today who um, and I recommend folks read Wretched of the Earth uh, and all of his works. And a lot of people don't realize, you know, he passed away in Bethesda, Maryland, which is not very well known. Our last question, please. Hi, I'm Ellie from uh, uh, New York. Um, you mentioned uh, kind of a little bit in passing, but you mentioned about how um, a lot of uh, Asian American refugees, they're treated as model minorities. And you mentioned about how you kind of reject that term or reject that association. And I guess I wanted you to talk a little bit more about how. How do you how do you tell people who are being um, fed it is not the right word, but they're being given this classification that sounds pretty good. I also kind of want to be a model minority one day, right? Um, how do you how do you educate them to say like that's act, like they're actually not your friends, right? Like how do you how do I tell the Asian Americans who are suing Harvard over affirmative action that they're absolutely right that Harvard has been horrible? But that their problem is not other minorities. It's you know, Lincoln Riley's. It's the football team. Like, how do I? How do you make that sell? And how do you make that connection? And how should we think about making that as well? Yeah. Well, I think those efforts are, are certainly well underway. And and um, so one of the so number one, you know, given the last eighteen months of, that, of what we've lived through in terms of COVID, but also the rise of anti-Asian sentiment, I think it's become obvious to a lot of Asian Americans that if they in fact thought of themselves as the model minority, they've had a very painful reminder that they're not, or at the same time, they're also the yellow peril, right? So you know, it's it's a great teaching moment out of this terrible out of this terrible time to you know bring home exactly the structural analysis that you're talking about. We have constant reminders of the fact that you could be as an Asian American lauded as a model minority and yet be subjected to violence, rhetorical and physical at the very same time. So there's plenty of examples that we can turn to in the present moment, not even just historically, right? 
but that example that you brought up of the um, you know the uh, anti affirmative action lawsuits, uh, which have been um, supported by some Asian Americans, brings up the fact that not all Asian Americans are the same politically, just as the rest of this country is not the same politically. And I think that has been something that I think has been very useful in a clarifying kind of way. Um, because when I said this 20 years ago, uh, when I wrote this, my, my first book, I said, look, Asian Americans are ideologically diverse. We're not all liberals and radicals. In fact, we have conservatives. One second, please. They're dismissing classes and announcing it over the PA. But, you know, I said there are Asian American conservatives and a lot of Asian Americans didn't want to hear this 20 years ago. But now we have this very visible reminder, uh, not just with the anti-affirmative action lawsuits, but that's just one case that Asian Americans might be might be bound together in some ways by things like our love for BOBA and for BTS and all that. But we're also divided politically. That's an important recognition to have. And so my answer to you in that in that to your question is there, you know, there the structural response to the Asian anti-affirmative action lawsuit is very very clear. You, you yourself laid out that, that answer, like, you know, uh, that it's a system that's at, that's at fault and it's not other people of color. Well, you can make that argument to the anti-affirmative action people. They're not going to necessarily hear it or agree with it. And that's what politics is about. And so then the, the solution to that is that Asian Americans need to actually fight against other Asian Americans around a divisive political issue. That's actually what's taking place. And that's why I think it's, it's very clarifying that uh, that we see some of the very limitations of Asian American formation and identity through cases like uh, affirmative action. And there are other kinds of political things like this as well. Uh, but it helps to to have to to clarify that we have different sides on this matter and other matters. Give it up, please, for Viet Thanh Nguyen. Okay. Thank you, audience. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for some choice words. Okay, look. Jackson State University football coach Neon Deion Sanders is an NFL first ballot Hall of Famer. He's arguably the greatest cornerback to play the game. And he also shocked the college football world last week by successfully recruiting Travis Hunter, a high school cornerback who Rivals.com considers the top high school football player in the nation to an HBCU, historically black college and university. It was such unexpected news that football scribe Bruce Feldman called it the biggest signing day stunner in my 20 plus years of covering this stuff. Sanders recruited Hunter away from Sanders' alma mater, Florida State University. Ooh, that one had to hurt. It's not an overstatement to call the day's events cinematic. In this era, the country's top high school athlete signing with a black college simply doesn't happen. 
Over the years, there were rumors of black athletes considering joining a team at one of the country's historically black colleges or universities, but Hunter is actually taking the step. Derek White, a professor of history at Kentucky, said in an email to me, this is historic, both post-integration and in the modern era of recruiting rankings. It signals that Dion has the personality and cachet with recruits, but it also fits with broader data that HBCU's enrollments have increased. The question remains whether other HBCU football programs can replicate JSU's success. Regardless, this is a big moment for HBCU football. Now, this is not the first time in Sanders' two seasons in Jackson, Mississippi, that he has convinced players to forego a Power Five conference and join his Tigers squad. Last year, his son Shador Sanders, a sought-after quarterback, joined his father's team, and DeJohn Warren, 2020's highest-rated quarterback, decided he wouldn't play at the University of Georgia, but at Jackson State. According to the undefeated, Sanders also signed eight players who transferred out of Power Five schools and his son Shiloh Sanders. But Sanders is more than a good recruiter. He can clearly coach. The Tigers went 11-1 this season, and they're going to be playing in the Celebration Bowl on Saturday in Atlanta. In 2019, when Jamel Hill at the Atlantic penned, it's time for black athletes to leave white colleges, she was pilloried and derided as a segregationist. That was an ironic label, given that HBCUs exist because white colleges practice segregation. But in calling for black athletes to enroll at HBCUs, Hill argued for a community solidarity that could help rebuild HBCUs, so many of which are in financial straits. Referring to the country's talented high school athletes, she wrote, they attract money and attention to the prominently white universities that showcase them while HBCUs struggle. What would happen if they collectively decided to go to black schools? She noted, the entire endowment of North Carolina A&T is worth barely as much as Clemson's football campus. Let's now imagine the reverse. Fat football endowments at HBCUs and Clemson University head coach Dabo Sweeney getting his $10 million salary snipped. Hunter choosing Jackson State may prompt many to remember an era lasting into the 1970s when predominantly white colleges were wary of recruiting black talent. The best black players went to HBCUs. Super Bowl winning running back Walter Payton played at Jackson State. Super Bowl MVPs Jerry Rice and Doug Williams played at Mississippi Valley State and Grambling State, respectively. As ugly as it was that white colleges limited the number of black football players they recruited, that racism greatly benefited HBCU sports and made their programs a focus of attraction, not to mention revenue, on the college football circuit. Those same black collegiate athletics programs have suffered during the last 30 years as white schools have gone scorched earth in their search for black athletic excellence. While Hunter's rejection of Florida State for Jackson State might make many nostalgic for HBCU's glorious football pass, it's important to note that his move is about him, his present and his future. In the short term, Hunter dramatically raises his profile with a trailblazing move. Companies already scouring the landscape looking to pay to use the name, image, and likeness of college athletes will find their way to Hunter's door. In the long term, his college games will generate weekly attention, further increasing his brand power. In Sanders, he not only has a master cornerback to teach him every trick, he has a coach who will look to utilize him on offense and special teams. 
prime time to use another of Sanders' nicknames, will put Hunter in positions to shine. All the better for his NFL prospects. Could Florida State make such assurances? They certainly couldn't offer the kind of spotlight that Neon Dion brings. Hunter's decision could be a one-off or a harbinger of more to come, thereby transforming Hill's column from plea to prophecy. What is certain is that we're living at an inflection point where black politics or the politics of anti-racism and sports have not been so intertwined since the 1970s. That was the era Dr. Harry Edwards called the revolt of the black athlete. 50 years ago though, college sports were a sideline industry and it was assumed black athletes would go to HBCUs. Now collegiate athletics is a multi-billion dollar beast where schools with minuscule black student bodies field teams overwhelmingly stacked with black talent. New laws allowing college athletes to profit from the use of their name, image, or likeness can do exactly what their supporters promised. Level the playing field between the Alabamas and Georgias and Jackson States. If more top-tier athletes start flowing to HBCUs, it will mark a gigantic transfer of wealth from the predominantly white institutions that depend on football as an economic tentpole for their entire operation. In other words, there are a lot of powerful people who will fight this. As for now, the spotlight will be on Hunter. If he can take care of business on and especially off the field, more top flight black talent will follow. If anyone can help him manage the spotlight, it's the coach named Primetime. And now for the part of the program that everybody keeps asking me about. It's where my son Jacob picks the latest NFL games. We call it Jake's Takes. Jake, how you doing, sir? I'm good. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. So how'd you do this past week? I did well. I went 10-4, and four, you know. I got my bet the house finally right. So what's the record so far? Uh, 131-75-1. All right, all right, inching towards that two-to-one ratio that you want, that if you get, remember, you get to go to college. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's go. Yeah, this is a good deal, because I'll have made enough off these uh, bets to send you. Okay, you ready to go through these picks? Mm-hmm. All right, answer loud, answer clear, uh, and I would answer short and sharp, because we got to keep it on moving on this program. All right, Thursday night. We're recording this on Thursday night. Kansas City Chiefs. What a name. At the Los Angeles, don't call them San Diego Chargers. Who do you got? Ooh, this probably, I haven't looked at most of the games, but this has to be the game of the week. I mean, this is is such a close game in division matchup. I'm going to go with the Chiefs, though. They're really hot, and they're just going to keep going. Wow. I like the Chargers. We'll see what happens. Uh, Raiders going to Cleveland to play the very coveted up Cleveland Browns. Very coveted up, and that's why they're not going to win this game. I mean, no Baker Mayfield, you know. So that's going to be a little tough, even though Case Keenum is probably better. But you like the Raiders. Um, like the, Raiders. the New England Patriots, oh, two of teams that I think are two of the five best teams in the whole AFC. Patriots traveling to Indianapolis. To play the Colts, who do you got? It's a really tough one. I got the Colts though in a really big defensive matchup. Nice. It's gonna be like thirteen to ten or something like that. I swear, the 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 Colts have been really good, and they honestly, they could be like they started the year off zero three. People don't remember that they started the year off zero three, and now they have a winning record. That's crazy. Yeah, no, it shows that they've got good coaching and 
that those first three games might be a little bit fluky as the beginning of the season often is. Uh, the ten- the curious Tennessee Titans traveling to Pittsburgh to play the Steelers. What do you like? I like the Steelers in that game. I like them a lot at home. That, that, that's gonna that's a gimme one for me. Oh my gosh. Uh Carolina Panthers traveling to Buffalo to play the bizarre Buffalo Bills. Bills, they really need a win and they're gonna get it this Sunday. They looking really bad lately. I mean like yeah, I think they got cheated out of this past game, but like like, like they, it should have been pass interference on that pass to Stefan. That should have been pass interference. So they kinda got cheated out of that game after coming all the way back, but Hey, you shouldn't fall that far behind then. Uh, zing, Washington football team traveling to Philly to play the Eagles. Who you like? Ah, uh, that's good. That's good. I would, do we know if Jalen Hurst is going to play? Uh, I don't think I we think, do. I think he is going to yeah. play. And I think that he's, they're, they're not going to win that game. I like, I like Washington. They're really hot. They're trying to make a playoff push. And they're, they're, they're this game is really going to help them after they win. Texans traveling to Jacksonville to play the Jaguars. Who you like? Uh, I like I like the Texans in that game. Jaguars, no more Urban Blight. I mean Urban Meyer. Uh, saw that Josh Lambo stuff. Yeah, of course I did. He said he was gonna kick Josh Lambo. He said he did kick Josh Lambo. Man, he's lucky Josh, Josh Lambo didn't kick him into the uprights. Goodness gracious! It's lucky that Josh Lambo does not practice toxic masculinity. Um, that's probably why he kicked him. Uh, Dallas Cowboys traveling to New Jersey to play the Giants. Who you like? This kind of feels like one of those games where the Giants are gonna like somehow win. It's just <laughs> except they, that's they, not they gonna always, happen. They always though. have that game, but it's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. This is a nine and four Cowboys team that has a really really good offense against the Giants team. That just it's, it isn't good. No. All right, so you got the Cardinals now. Ooh, looked not great against the Rams. A lot of questionable decisions. Still only lost by a touchdown. The Cardinals going against the Lions. Who do you like? Ah, it's a good one. Is it, though? No, I'm joking. Oh, he's joking. Because the Lions win. So, I mean, Chiefs. Ah, no, ah, no, ah, you said it. You no, said it. You said it. No, no it's the right. Cardinals win. Fine. All right. Win. Jets traveling to Miami to play the Dolphins. Who do you like? <laughs> God. You can't pick the Jets. You just can't. You did last week against the Saints. That was embarrassing. Are you picking the Jets? No, I'm not. I'm picking the Dolphins. This is a hot Dolphins team. Won like five straight. Why? Oh, why would you pick against the Jets? You know they're going to win just to spite you. Okay. The Bengals (laughs) travel to Denver to play the surprisingly frisky Broncos. Who do you like? Ah. That's going to be a good game. I have a weird feeling that the Broncos are going to win, but I'm going to take the safe pick in the Bengals, I think, because the Broncos' offense is just so not very good. Yeah. compared to At least compared to the Bengals' offense. Like, that Bengals' offense is stacked. See what happens. Uh, Falcons travel to San Fran to play the 49ers. Ooh. Ah. Come on. Ah. 49ers are playing great. Yeah, yeah, I'll take the Niners. Yeah, I'll take the Niners. Sorry, did I, did I push yeah. you on that one? No, 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 no. All right. No. Don't want to push you. All right, Seahawks traveling to L.A. to play the Rams. Who do you like? This is a shootout game. And this is going to be a game where the Seahawks win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Seahawks man. Seahawks. Game. You're picking the Seahawks. Yeah, I'm picking the Seahawks. The Seahawks are going to win. Yeah, shout out to Miles and... 
Uh, Satch, what do you think? Picking the Seahawks. All right. Packers-Ravens. Packers-Ravens. This is not going to be a close game at all. The Ravens, injury-riddled Ravens. Just lost Chuck Clark. You know that, right? You saw that. So, at the start of the season, sorry, sorry, sorry. We do not have a single starting player from our secondary. And, like, as we did, like, August, like, 25th or something crazy like that. We've lost every single starting player. Wow. In the secondary. That's so crazy how how bad that is. The also the Packers are one of the best teams in football. So, it's going to be an easy for the Packers. Oh, breaking my heart. Uh the Saints, the team you didn't pick against the Jets, against the Buccaneers. Who do you like? Bucks aren't going to lose both games to the Saints. Let's be real here and they're going to they're going to win. And then lastly, one of the oldest rivalries in the sport, Monday night, the Minnesota Vikings travel to Chicago to play the Bears. Who do you like? Who do I like in this one? Yeah, I, I like I like the, the Vikings in this one. Really? They, they have such a better offense. And even, like, they don't have, like, a better defense, I don't think. But they're still, both teams are inconsistent. Yeah, but the Vikings are the better team. Now, mm-hmm. uh, what's your bet the house game? Ooh, yeah, I bet the house game. What is my bet the house game? My bet the house game is that the Packers will beat the Ravens. Oh, heartbreaking, heartbreaking, heartbreaking. Just, that's such an easy lock. Well, I know. Let's hope for the bet the house jinx. Yeah, I hope too. I know. Well, Jake, it was mm-hmm. a good time, man. Thanks good for time. coming through. Mm-hmm. All right, fist bump. Fist bump. All right. We'll be right back after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The, the Nation, Nation Magazine. Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to not just Vietton Nguyen, but also the folks at The Nation magazine who let me use this interview for the podcast. I really do appreciate that. Uh, thank you so much to Jake for coming on with me with the Jake Stakes. Thank you so much to my producer, David Tigaboo. For everybody out there, you can support this podcast by going to our Patreon page. I, it's very appreciated. What can I tell you? Uh, You can support this podcast also by getting an online subscription to The Nation magazine. That also helps us a great deal. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.